to the Uproom Frisco podcast. To learn more about your Frisco, please visit uproomfrisco.com. Um, today, uh, what I want to do is um, I plan on reading a section of scripture that is uh, jam-packed with power and revelation and goodness. It's a section that has delighted and enthralled and confounded and, and deepened the relationships with the Lord of, of, of saints for 2,000 years ever since Paul uh, penned it. And um, after I read the section, what I want to do is just go back through verse by verse and see what the Holy Spirit has for us. And the reason I say it's a section of scripture that's confounded saints is because it's very mysterious. And so it would be arrogant of me to say that today we're going to figure it out. You know, we're not, we're not going to figure everything out. But uh, what, I, what I want to do figuratively is if you can envision this section of scripture like a campfire that we're all gathered around, like we can see the fire, smell the fire. We don't, we don't know why the fire delights us. You might know some of the physics of what fire does, but you don't necessarily fully understand the effect that it has on the human soul. And so if we could just gather around and marinate, you know, in these verses, that's, that's my goal for today. And so uh, open with me to, to Philippians 2. Holy Spirit, warm our hearts. Um, I want to say that uh, Paul was in a great mood when he wrote Philippians. I don't know if you ever caught that. I was, I've been reading through Philippians over and over and over and over, over like the last month or two, and just like really getting it in me, just chewing on uh, these verses. And what I've noticed is that Paul is exceptionally like happy-go-lucky. He reminds me of Mater from the movie Cars. He's like the Mater apostle when he's writing this in like the most wonderful way. If you guys can catch this, bear with me. He's like, I'm in jail, but that's cool. Like there's, there's wonderful work for me. Like, you know, the, the gospel's going forth. He's like, there are even people preaching Christ out of false motives. That's cool. Because at least the name of Christ is being preached. Like he's just, he's like, rejoice in the Lord. You know, even if I die, that's cool. That'd be awesome, actually. Like, I, said, I know I said this already, but rejoice in the Lord, people. <laughs> he's just in a really good mood. He's, he's shouting, like, rejoice in the Lord. And I think that, you know, when, when you get put in prison, it gives you a real perspective. And, and he's writing to the church. And I know that um, he's probably heard, you know, reports of maybe a, a little bit of division here or a little bit of, you know, um, like unhealthy... Um, relationship stuff going on here. I mean, it's a, it's a church, right? But Paul, he's like, y'all, prison has given me quite the perspective. Let, let's just throw aside every single little thing. It compares nothing to just being alone with Jesus. It's, it's nothing compared to his presence. So, so let's just start reading. This is Philippians 1. Um, and today I'm reading from the ESV, but I'm going to be shouting out, out a lot of other versions uh, and how other versions choose uh, the language that they, they choose. And so uh, Philippians 2 verse 1. So if there is any comfort in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others 
It's more significant or more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or have this attitude about you, which Christ also had, who though he was in the form of God, or though he is in equality with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that just like a powerhouse for our souls? I feel like if I was, you know, stranded on a desert island and and was allowed just to bring a handful of like chapters with me, like this would make the list. If I could choose, you know, 10 chapters to take with me wherever I go, this would would be one of them. I think this is arguably uh, one of Paul's greatest writings, if not the greatest. Um, And he's, like I said, he's in jail. He's in this crushing season. Uh, There's a guy named Dan Moeller who says that when you crush an orange, orange juice comes out. When you crush a Christian, Christ should come out. So uh, let's, like I said, let's just kind of pick this apart and have fun and see what kind of bunny trails the Holy Spirit has for us this morning. Uh, Go back to verse 1. And this time, can you put up that first slide that I sent? I just wanted to break it down really simply. Paul is asking or saying, you know, if you have experienced comfort from his love, has anyone ever been comforted by his love? Yeah. Uh, Participation in the spirit or fellowship in the spirit. Has anyone in here felt experienced fellowship with the Holy Spirit? And then I, I combined this next section. This is the ESV, the NIV, the NLT, there's a lot of different synonyms that they chose for this next section. And it's, if you have any affection, any sympathy, any tenderness, any compassion. You know, I think that probably covers just about all of us in this room, wouldn't you say? I think that what Paul is listing out here are benefits of being in the family of God. It's, uh, to me, it's akin to Psalm 103 when David is saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits. And then he lists out what it's like to be with God, the the benefits of being with Jesus. And, And he's listing out who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from destruction, crowns you with tender, kind, or, uh, tender mercies and kindness, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed. See, they don't have any problem boasting about how good it is to be with God. They don't have any, David and, and Paul and the, the authors of scripture, they don't have any qualms about saying, you know, we, we worship him for who he is, but man, what he does for us is so good too right? So Paul is saying here, 
Uh, if you've experienced any one of these things or all of these things, and, he, and then go to the next slide, he says, then make my joy complete. And he's speaking to a whole church, just like us. And he's saying to the church, be one in heart, in mind, in love, and in spirit. And Paul, from this place of, of prison, is, is, is saying, don't be bothered with the small stuff. Don't let these little disagreements tear apart the, the knitting together of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Cling to what is good. Remember the main, keep the main thing, the main thing. Don't get into little squabbles over side topics. Protect the bond of peace in the Spirit. Amen. Let's go to verse 3. So he's continuing to adjure us, admonish us. He's saying, be of one mind, of one heart, of one love, of one spirit, and do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Notice that he uh, wrote selfish ambition and not just ambition because amb there's nothing wrong with ambition. You know that God is great and you're made in his image, so your desire to be great is from God. But there is such a thing as selfish ambition, trampling over others and thinking too highly of ourselves and thinking about ourselves so much. And so he says, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And I want to say that humility looks like something. Humility is not self-centered or self-focused, but other-centered and other-focused. And Paul is not, he's not saying like, uh, completely like forget about yourselves. It's, it's impossible. We all know how to look out for ourselves, but Paul is saying add something more important to looking out for yourselves and look out for others also and above and beyond just yourselves. Count others as more important than yourselves. You know, someone who taught me this at an early age was Vincent Corcoran. Even when we were back in like middle school and we would have uh, youth group parties, <clears throat> if we had a pizza party, Vince would take the smallest piece. And I would notice that. And I was, you know, I was like trying to find the biggest piece, right? Because I, like, I, I wanted to fill my stomach. But I took note of how Vince would act in those situations. Or if there was not enough pizza, he just, he wouldn't have a piece because he was thinking about other people. And, and from an early age, people like Vince taught me what it actually looks like to prefer others. Okay, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or have this attitude about you that Christ had. So at this moment, Paul is shifting. He's shifting from admonishing and he's going into now Christology. This is an important moment because Paul isn't just telling us things to do. He's telling us how we can access the ability to do those things in Christ. They are ours in Christ Jesus. And if he had this mind about him, then we can also have this mind about him, which means that everything that Paul said before this moment applies to Jesus, which means that Jesus never did anything out of selfish ambition or, va or vain conceit. And Jesus, as crazy as this sounds, thought that you were more important than him. Jesus not only thought it, he lived it and undeniably showed it by going to the cross. See, Jesus was the husband with 
the greatest and most important career that any husband could ever had, and he laid down his life for his wife at age 33 when he still had decades left where he could have been the greatest preacher, author, and revivalist that ever lived. He preferred his wife's life to his own. I know. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Verse six. <clears throat> so have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, or that word form right there is actually a, a little bit confusing because it doesn't mean that he just looked like God. It means that that word form actually means that he was fully God. Uh, it's, it's not like that Netflix show that you guys have probably heard of, Is It Cake? Where <laughs> it's a competition and they have, they have an actual piece of cake that looks exactly like a cash register and then the actual cash register next to it, but the guy made the cake look so much like the cash register that people aren't able to tell that it's actually cake. This is not that. <laughs> Jesus... <laughs> He doesn't just look like God, or he doesn't just look like man. He is actually fully God and fully man. He's not uh, cake appearing as a cash register. <laughs> anyway, he's not like a mannequin appearing as a man, and he's not just appearing as God either, because that word form is going to come back to um, in, in regards to him being human also. And so uh, this word is used to say, uh, that he is actually fully God as he is fully man. And there are just so many texts that confirm this, but for a second, I just want us to think about the transfiguration, right? So Peter, James, and John go up the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus, he's looking like a normal, you know, ancient Jew, like with his normal clothes on, and he's going up the mountain with his buddies. And, and before Peter, James, and John's eyes, he is transformed. It says the appearance of his face changes. His clothes are as bright as a flash of lightning. His face is you know, brighter than the sun. And, and it's this amazing moment. And, and, and on top of that, heaven manifests either through him or, or you know, the eyes of their heart are completely open. We know that heaven manifests because two heroes from the great cloud of witnesses, namely Moses and Elijah, come on the mountain. And they may have passed through him or whatever, but they are now on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And then on top of that, they all hear the audible voice of the Father thundering from within this cloud that has enveloped them. And it's this very notable moment. You know, if it happened to you, you would re remember it, you know? Like, you'd write about it. It would go in your journal. Um, and people think that Jesus, like displaying his glory, is the miracle. But the real miracle is that he held that in every moment of every day. See, this is Jesus who possesses the same glory as the Father, sits on the same size throne as the Father, receives the same praise and honor as the Father. And in this moment, he is letting the veil of his flesh get really thin and showing them that he is actually seated in heaven, positioned on earth, and is fully God. Okay, this next section, it says he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. 
So go back to verse six. This is just the second part of verse six. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, so this is poetic language. Paul is using uh, a figurative language to try to describe something that transcends the ability of the human mind to comprehend by using the term grasp. We know that you can't grasp a, a spirit. You know that you can't grasp you know, an, a, an entity like that. But Paul is using that word, and, and there are so many different translations of this. I just want to go over a, a couple of them, uh, some synonyms or other ways that people have described this verse or, or defined this word grasped. He did not count equality with God something to cling on to. He did not count equality with God something to be forcefully taken. And my favorite one right now in this season that has been messing me up is he did not consider his position a thing to be exploited for his own benefit. (laughs) NLT. He didn't consider his own position a thing to be exploited for his own benefit benefit, but, go to the next verse, he emptied himself. Welcome to the word that has caused debate for 2,000 years. This word emptied, what does it mean? In Greek, it's the word kenosis. So if you ever hear the word kenosis, just know that it's pointing to Philippians 2. It's the, uh, the condescension of Jesus. It is the incarnation. It is him leaving the privileges of heaven, the privileges of his divine uh, rights and laying them down. He's this guy that he, he uses his high position to lift those from low positions. This really transcends our ability, uh, the ability of any metaphor to describe or define it. Um, it's really, a, I think it's a verse that needs to be chewed on. And, and I don't want to convince you of one particular meaning. I just want to tell you some, some of the things that have really lit my heart up with love for Jesus as I've been studying this. Some translations uh, use the phrase, he made himself nothing, which I think is kind of clunky. It's clunkier language uh, because uh, Jesus was never nothing. He was always everything. He didn't make himself nothing. He made himself, some, he, he, he made himself something else that is also wonderful. And like this is, this is the kind of concept that um, delights our hearts to think about Jesus in whom, through whom, by whom all things are made and all things are held together within him. You know that like Jesus is so big, the, the Trinity is so big that God doesn't dwell in heaven. Heaven dwells in God. The highest heavens can't contain him. All things are within him. And so if you can think for just a moment, I know this is just like, you know, otherworldly kind of language, and we're just like talking about something that is is too wonderful for us to fully grasp, but Jesus is bigger than all of creation and somehow took all of God, all of deity, and it's almost as if he inverted his existence to, so that the creator could become the created. And all of God not only dwelt in bodily form, all of God somehow got into a microscopic seed so that the seed of God could fertilize the egg of women for the redemption of all mankind. It's as if a painter 
with a paintbrush is crea has created the most glorious painting that anyone has ever seen. And, and this painter is moved with such love for the things that he's created with his, within his painting that he wants to get in there himself. And he, it's as if he injects all of his being through the paintbrush into the very painting that he's created so that he could come and walk among us and redeem our understanding of the heart of the Father. The New Living Translation says that he... Uh, it says it like this, he gave up his divine privileges. So we know that God never changes. That's like the, the doctrine of immutability. Um, and so he didn't give up his nature. He didn't give up his attributes. What I think happened in this emptying is that he's like a king, right? And and he's part of a kingdom, you know, and when a, when a kingdom goes to war, the soldiers go out and a good king goes out and fights with the soldiers. And a really great king goes out to the front line to encourage his, his soldiers and goes and, and fights the enemy alongside his soldiers. And so everyone knows in that moment that he is no less king while he is soldier, but now he is both soldier and king. He left the protection of the palace because love doesn't hide behind palace walls. Love gets down in the dirtiness with us. This is a voluntary weakness that Jesus chose for on our behalf. So in the next verse or the next section, it says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. And there's that word form again, which means that he didn't just look like a man. He is fully man. This verse is actually describing the incarnation or what, you know, what we call the incarnation. And uh, a simple way to remember what that means is all of us have gone out and ordered tacos and we ordered the carne taco, Right? Right? Everyone knows what like carne asada is. If you order a carne taco, it, you know that you're getting the flesh of an animal, right? And so carne is flesh or carnal. So incarnation is not a flower you give your mom on Mother's Day. Incarnation is the enfleshment of God, right? So this is the, the great mystery. This is the greatest mystery of all. <laughs> He's 100% human and 100% God in one place. This is Hebrews 2. It says that since the children or since we have flesh and blood, he too took on flesh and blood just like us. And it says he's made like us in every respect. He was born like us. Luke 2.40 and Luke 2.42 are a couple of my favorite verses about the humanity of Christ. Luke 2.40 says that the boy grew and became strong. The boy, Jesus, grew just like we do. And then Luke 2.42 says that he grew in wisdom, stature, and favor before God and man. What? This one who is 100% God at every moment and never changes is growing in wisdom, stature, and favor, which means that he voluntary, voluntarily took on weakness so that he could experience every phase of the human life and development 
so that we would know that he is a sympathetic, compassionate high priest. This doesn't mean that Jesus ever sinned, but it's not a sin to like be learning how to swing a hammer and hit your thumb. Jesus probably missed the nail and hit his thumb once or twice as he was learning to be a carpenter. I know that sounds crazy. We know that if he falls off the temple, the angels will bear him up in his arms, but that doesn't mean that they stopped him from spilling the milk when he was a kid. Like he had to learn how to be just like us. Wild, huh? 1 Timothy 3.16, that says, Great is the mystery of godliness, that God was made man of flesh in the, in the flesh. Great is the mystery. So Paul is, again, he's just saying that, like, the best we can do is describe what this is like. We're going to be spending all of eternity getting lost in the glorious realities, the manifold wisdom of God coming in the flesh. This is Paul who would defend his his scholarship, he, he would be like the scholar of scholars today. If he lived today, he would already have his doctorate from Harvard, Yale, and Oxford. He would speak in 27 dead languages. Like he, this, would be, this would be Paul, the smartest guy in the world, is saying, hey, if y'all think you have this figured out, look at all my degrees, okay? I don't have it figured out. Colossians 1 says that all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. It says that he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Jesus, all things hold together. Beloved, when Jesus was a baby, the universe spun within him. Second Corinthians 5 says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us, John chapter one says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Second John one seven says, that, this is important. This is John the beloved, the apostle, this tender, John the revelator. He's saying anyone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh or sarks, which is this, it's fleshy, like it's carne. Anyone who denies that Jesus came just like us is of the antichrist. We have to embrace the humanity of Christ. The uh, ancient creed of Chalcedon puts it like this. These are when the early church fathers gathered together in 451. They say that Christ is truly God and truly man to be acknowledged in two natures unchangeably, individually, individually inseparably. The distinction, of, the distinction of the two natures being by no means taken away by the union but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person. Later, theologians would call this all of God and all of man, like 100% God and 100% man dwelling in one place. They would call it the hypostatic union. Y'all with me? Can you say hypostatic union? I know we're nerding out so hard today, but now you can go home and say, I learned hypostatic union. It means it's the place where 100% God and 100% man dwells in one place. It's the union of two natures within, the, within Christ, and he will be 100% man and 100% God forever. So the word became flesh. I have a question, and this one might throw you for a loop. Does God ever become something that is not good?
He became what? Just like us. Since we have flesh and blood, he too took on flesh and blood. He grew up just like us. He was born just like us. Beloved, you were made good. When God made man, he said, it's good. You know, some place that people tend to get lost in the weeds with uh, this section of scripture is when they're defending the unchangeableness of God, they're doing it at the expense of taking away his relatability or the fact that he is a relational God. And I mean that like this. They'll say that, well, God can't change. That means that he was only displaying emotion for our benefit, but never felt it himself. The God can't change, which means that he could never be surprised by someone, except that he marveled at the faith of the centurion, right? He marveled. I love that section of scripture when the centurion comes to Jesus and says, sir, my servant is lying at home, suffering terribly, but just say the word, I know he'll be healed. And Jesus says, I'll come to him and heal him. And, and the centurion says, no, no, I'm, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and I know he'll be healed because I too am a man under authority. So I say to this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. And Jesus is like, He's looking at his disciples. He's like, did you just hear what this Roman said? Who has, he's not even a Hebrew. He has a better understanding of the heart of God than anyone I've met in all of Israel. And Jesus is literally dumbfounded. He's gobsmacked. He's marveling. It's wonderful. How about this? Jesus weeping. And people will say, oh, well, he was just, it was an anthropomorphism, which means that he was condescending to our level to display emotion, to show that he, he would display emotion, you know, just like us. But no, guys, Jesus wept because he was heartbroken along with his friends. He was moved. He was grieved. Jesus got tired. Can you imagine that? He got tired and had to sleep. He got tired and had to sit down. He got thirsty and had to sit at Jacob's well. This is verse 8. Woo, I told you there's a lot of uh, fun rabbit trails. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Guys, love gets low. A, a normal king is to be served. Jesus came as the king, and in Mark 10, 45 said, the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He is the only king that doesn't demand serving, but he serves first. He's the only king that loves first that we would love. When every other God wanted our life, every deity, every fallen demon, every, every idol that was worshipped throughout history, every fallen God or, or every fallen angel demands our life. He's the only God that comes and gives us his. He stoops down. He humbles himself. He gets low. Even when the, the woman who is caught in adultery is brought before him, he stoops down and begins to draw in the dust that he once used to form man because in this moment he is reforming her. He meets the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And I know I've brought up women twice. Not, it's because in, in ancient Israel they were 
second-class citizens, not citizens at all, treated more like property. And then to be a Samaritan on top of it, Jews considered Samaritans to be this deceived cult, this half, they called them dogs, like half breeds. And so Jesus is now sitting down at Jacob's well because he was tired. Beloved, you can do something with your life that refreshes Jesus. He's sitting down at Jacob's well because he is tired. And he begins to speak to a woman of a nationality that is that they have racial tension with, someone that is considered less than human. And he's talking to this woman who he knows has also been divorced five times, which is taboo, extra taboo. And now he's like giving of himself to her. That's how low this king goes. Guys, he doesn't try to love. He is love. And the minute we try to love, we've stepped out of being who we are, which is love. We don't go out in ministry mode. We go out in love mode. When we go out in ministry mode, ministry doesn't happen. When we go out in love mode, love always, ministry always happens. He humbled himself. Even when he had a big crowd, he preached a message that dispersed them all, and he went back to just these 12. He humbled himself in that he was born into poverty. He came as a ruler, he, but he wasn't born to a Caesar. He wasn't born to a family that had political connections. It would be as if the savior of the world was being born today, and he chose to be born through a, a refugee family from Syria that's, that has no rights and no place in our country. You know, like it would be something similar to that. He was humble in that he was born as a child instead of coming as a man. Wouldn't it be better just to skip the bad parts? Like, he had his diapers changed. That's humbling. He's humble. Let's talk about the teenage years. Why wouldn't he just skip that? No one wants to live that. Jesus took on the B.O. and the voice cracks. And he made it holy because he's holy. He filled every part of the human existence with his glory. Now there's no place that isn't ablaze with his glory. Every bush is ablaze with his glory. He filled every single part of the human experience with him. He is the very radiance of the Father he is the one that ever proceeds forth from the Father, which means that every moment he was filling even the darkest, hardest moments of the life of man with the brilliance of the Father. He was humble in the fact that he had to learn. He had to practice a trade, even a humble trade. He was humble in, even in the companions, the disciples that he picked. What a ragtag crew, you know? The only man who needs no help chose 12 helpers, and whoa, those helpers that he chose. He was humble in the audience that he appealed to and the way he talked. He was humble in the weakness, the tiredness, and the thirst. He was humble in the way he submitted to the Holy Spirit fully throughout his whole life. See, he couldn't get low enough. It's as if he was ever descending. It's as if he was trying to fill the lowest and hardest places with himself his whole life. And he knew that, he knew that as a living man, he couldn't get as low as he needed to to undo death. And so God omnipotent, omniscient, God in the flesh smuggles himself into the lowest place, which is the grave. 
He ultimately had to die so that he could taste death for all of us, so that all could die with him and be raised with him. See, God had to swindle the great swindler so that he could get into the very place he wanted to be. As John Mark wrote in one of his greatest songs, the man Jesus Christ laid death in his grave. He was humble in submitting to death, even death on a cross. The, the shame, the nakedness, the mocking, he was humble in enduring all of that agony. There's a reason why that, that's, that verse reads, even death on a cross. And I know that most of you all know this, but it's the worst way. It's reserved for the worst. If, if you're a Roman citizen, the cross isn't even an option for your death penalty because they would say that it's, it's subhuman. And no Roman, no matter how bad that Roman is, can be subjected to the cross. That's how bad. And then the Jews, on the other hand, they say they believe that if you're hung on a tree, then you are cursed. And so Jesus is perceived as cursed by God, by the Jews, and less than human by the Romans. And this is the king of the universe. Verse 9, it's about to get good. Therefore, you know, when there's a therefore, you should figure out what it's there for. <laughs> Everything that he endured, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, beloved. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. Jesus himself demonstrated this for us. He didn't lift himself up. He got low and let the Father lift him. He didn't even make a name for himself. He lived in a way that the Father was able to give him his name grant him his name, bestow on him the name that is above every other name. This is the Babel system turned upside down. You know, at the Tower of Babel, when they gathered together to build a tower to heaven, and they said, we're going to make a name for ourselves, Jesus did, the other, did it the other way around. And instead of building a tower to heaven, heaven came to earth, and he got as low as possible, wouldn't make a name for himself so that the Father could grant it to him. He came to earth because every knee on earth would bow. He went down into the grave because every knee under the earth would bow, and he ascended into heaven because every knee in heaven would bow. This is verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He got so close to us that um, he, it's not that he could just handle and manipulate us. He got so vulnerable and so close to us that we could handle and manipulate him. Have you guys ever thought about how people could trip Jesus? If they wanted to, they could dead leg him. Like that's how vulnerable he made himself to us. That's how available he made himself to us. He came to shoot the idea of separation in the head because anytime we start with the idea of separation, we begin to figure out what we have to do to please God, make God happy, make God love us. Instead of living from acceptance, we're now living for accept acceptance, and it is the birthplace of all religion. 
Jesus didn't just come, he joyfully came. He came for the joy set before him. He didn't draw the short straw in heaven with the Trinity. <laughs> He's like chomping at the bit, like, let me go. Let me get in there. You know the, the, the story of the, the prodigal son? The prodigal son wanders off, squanders his inheritance, and is living in pig troughs, and he begins to think about what it was like back in the father's house. And he turns around, starts walking home, and the older brother judges him, right? He stands off in a distance and like is, is judging and hating his younger brother, old beloved. We've got the best big brother of all. Turn that story upside down. Our big brother went to the father and said, let's go get brother. Let's go bring him home. And Jesus, as the best big brother ever, walked into our very darkest, dark moments, into the place where we were trapped in addiction and sin. He got down into the pig grime with us and whispered into our hungover, depraved ear and said, it's time to go home, bro. Let me carry you. And our big brother picked us up and walked the walk that we could never walk for ourselves and ascended the hill we could never ascend for ourselves and sat us in the place that we could never seat ourselves. And that is where we are seated now in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's so much glory in this section of scripture, but I want to share with you something that has been significant for me. I have been convicted by it very strongly over the last month, and I've been wondering how I can use my position to lift people up. I've been wondering how I can use my abilities to help those who are unable. And I've even wondered if there have been times where I've used my position, I've exploited this position for my, my own benefit. See, this ver these verses have such power to cut deep and reveal anything that's hidden beneath. And I want this section of scripture to cut us deep. Beloved, I want us as a church to start to begin to wonder, what can we do with our wealth to lift up the impoverished? What can we do with our strength to lift up the weak? How can we condescend? How can we stoop down? How can we get beneath people to lift them up? You know, Jesus, at the moment, he knew that the Father put everything underneath his feet, got underneath their feet, took off his outer garment, put some water in a basin and began to wash the feet, the dirt off the feet that he spoke into existence. When he knew everything was under him, he got under us so that nothing would be under us again. We would be lifted up to the highest place. Jesus, <clears throat> we pray God that you would Give us the same attitude that you had. Even though you were lifted, you were in a lofty place, you were the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you came as the servant of all. Would you make us servant kings, Jesus? Would you show us how we can display your love to a world that needs you so badly? Would you show us how we can use our strength to lift up the weak? Would you make us like you in every way? Father, we lay down our right to make a name for ourselves right now. We humble ourselves before you and we ask that you would lift us up. We thank you just for the privilege of being called son, being called daughter. 
Holy Spirit, take that sword and divide between soul and spirit, between bone and marrow. There's nothing more wonderful than being corrected by you. There's nothing more wonderful than hearing from you and being empowered to walk differently. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.